great question that we are asking this series where we have just begun. If you're new to church and you're wondering, wow, where are these guys in the middle of what they're exploring? We're exploring the book of Ephesians for 12 weeks. Um, We're in week number three. We are not even close to halfway. Praise God. That's fine. I thought that was a good thing. That's it's okay. I'm just going to open my Bible. Friends, in fact, why don't you open your Bible as well? Not just one of us. Why don't we all open our Word of God together? Um, if turn it on, if that's the case. And now, this is something really deliberate. When we get ready for church and we come into the house of God, one thing I'd love you to do is think, hey, could I bring the Word of God with me today? Now, I know someone out there is going to be like, Mark, the Word of God's written on my heart, which is praise. That's awesome. Thank you for being so good at Sunday school. But everybody else, what I'd love is, and this is the reason why, what we do is not a performance here. This is not entertainment. There is a communal activity that is happening right now. We are exploring the Word of God together. And so what I would love is you open the Word so that we read it together and that we might learn how we read it together. There might be something I say, and you're like, ah, oh, I want to ask him about that via email. or Let's explore that via small group. Know where it is and explore it. So let's read the Word of God together. Say Another thing I want to do real fast is to honor our um, our. Our camera crew. Not many of you would know this, but we have a camera up the back there, and we have a camera right here. And we're joined online today by a whole bunch of people around Australia and around the world. We also have Norman Ryan out the back. You don't see Norman Ryan every week, but they are at the back doing video switching, making sure that it's not horrible to watch on a screen. And we have Justine down the back. I say all of that because right now in St. George, there is a church who every week at 9:55 they gather. They share their announcements, and at 10 a.m., they press church.nu slash live, and they join our service. The first thing they see on a Sunday on the screen is Beck Howe leading in power and worship, and they're joining us right now. Now, I know you can't see them, but they can hear you. So I want us to do two things. Can we honor our camera crew, and can we all just honor and welcome St. George as they're joining us today, which is fantastic. Uh, and I'm also doing this to remind St. George that John and I are coming out to visit you this week on Wednesday night. So uh, we're looking forward to staying with you. And that's, we're going out to work at how we, you know, how can we bless them as a church? Um, they're, they're, they want to be more a part of what we're doing here or looking, exploring about what we're doing here. And, and we look forward to just meeting them. Um, I hope it's this week and that we've not sent St. George scrambling for something in two weeks' time. Send me an email. Either way. Friends, today's sermon, if we could encapsulate it, I would say, I would give it the title of Nature versus Nurture. If you're someone who likes to take notes, you could write down Nature versus Nurture. The other title I would give this sermon is The Power of the Butt. <laughs> Stay with me. We'll get there. Obviously, we're going to need prayer. Would you join me as we pray? Gracious God, as we look at nature versus nurture, as we look at who we are versus who we could be, as we look at why butts is, the word but is so important in today's story, such a weird prayer to pray, God. I pray that you would speak and move in and amongst us. Reveal your word to us, and may we know your truth. Less of me, more of you. In Jesus' name. Amen. More energy than the ADM. This is going to be fun. So we are in the middle of Ephesians, and we started Ephesians chapter 1. And in Ephesians chapter 1, we learned about the character of God. Um, for those of you who do not understand what these terms mean, we've got it on podcast. Go and check it out. We learned how God the Father adopts, God the Son redeems, and God the Spirit seals. Last week, Pastor John came and spoke an amazing message about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. How Paul's wish is for all Christians to know God better. 
And to do that, when we know God better, we know the hope he has for us. We know that there's a glorious inheritance available and that there is an incomparably great power for those who believe. The first chapter of Ephesians is like Paul setting up the context of who God is. He wants to weave you in in amazement at the beauty of God. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, he pauses and goes, now let's stop talking about God for a sec. And he changes his point of view and goes, let's talk about you. This is why nature versus nurture, nurture is so important. The nature versus nurture argument is one that many child psychologists and perhaps parents question and ask and discuss. How do we know who our children will become? Are they fated to become just version 2.0 of us? Or could we nurture ourselves out of them that they might become better, right, in Jesus' name? And uh, I found this most pertinent in my son, Archer. I realize this is probably the, the second or third week you've heard about my son, Archer. You might be like, Michael, you need to get out more. Yes, I do. <laughs> anyway, every Sunday morning, I wake up nice and early, and I go downstairs, and I practice my sermon. I, I spend time with God, I pray, and then I just walk through the rhythms of the sermon. Then at about 5.36 a.m., my son will wake up. I bring him down. He has his banana and his bottle, and he sits there, and I preach my sermon to Archer. So far, Archer has given his life to God week for week at the moment. <laughs> it's good. We're going well. But what started to happen is I'll be standing there, and I'm in, I'm in my kitchen, and I'm preaching, and I'm just going for it. Like, I'm wanting all the cutlery to be saved. And I'm like, God loves you. You are purposed. You are, there is a plan for your life. The resurrection power is in you. My wife came down one moment as I was spitting and ranting and raving in the middle of the kitchen, and she told me to look at my son. And, and so here's me. I'm like, God loves you. He is for you. God, the same. And I turn around, and my son, Archer, this little 18-month-old, he's like, da, da, da. <laughs> All the knives got saved on that day. He's powerful. And so I asked the question, is my son preaching because it's part of his nature or because I've nurtured it? Now, for those of you who don't know my father, my father's a powerful orator. Public speaking's in my veins. But I also kind of think that it's probably a little bit of both. Unfortunately, it's in his DNA to be a public speaker. If he'll be a preacher, we'll just see if I can nurture him away from that effectively. But nature versus nurture is actually the argument that Paul is stepping into in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul wants to ask the question, who are you by your own nature? Left to your own devices, who are you becoming or who I have you become? And he says, but if you were to be nurtured, who might you become? For those of you who are A-type leaders and, kind of, and, and thinkers and, you, and you're like, yeah, man, I need to know where you're heading today. Give me a blueprint so I know how far away we are from the finish. Today, we're going to be walking through three ideas. How Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, talks about the state of man, the response of God, and the way of grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, John Stott says this, For what Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid contrast between what man is by nature... And what he can become by grace. He wants to paint a picture for you of what we are by nature. But if God intervenes, what we might become. And so we jump straight into the state of man this morning. 
and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul finishes Ephesians chapter 1, and he talks. It's, Ephesians chapter 1 is like, it's a phenomenal piece of literary work. It's filled with the longest sentences known to man. It's amazing. It paints a beautiful picture of God. And it's, it's like you left reading Ephesians chapter 1, feeling a little bit warm and fuzzy and uh, enamored with the glory of God. You know, God is amazing. It talks about how you know God's incomparably great power for you because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who's now seated at the right hand of the Father, and the fullness of Jesus is made known in the church. So we are the fullness of Christ in the world. And you kind of finish Ephesians chapter 1 being like, yeah, I want Paul to write me more letters. This is great. And then you start Ephesians chapter 2, and it's like Paul comes out and goes, tricked you. And he leads with this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Okay, Paul, <laughs> settle down, buddy. We talk about God in all this beauty and majesty, and then you turn around and you focus your attention on me, Paul, and you're like, you, you're loved. You know, God, God really wants you. He, he comes out swinging, and you, in contrast, are dead, were dead, he says, in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked. Hang on, Paul. I'm not dead. You're dead. Where do you get off, Paul? Telling me that I'm dead in my... Who, who, made, who died and made you king, Paul? This is kind of how we start to react. We're like, Paul doesn't know my story. Paul doesn't know me. In fact, maybe you're here today and you're not yet a Christian or you're yet to follow Jesus. Maybe you're a young person and you've been sitting in church and you're going, you know, uh, I got dragged along by my mum or dad or maybe you're here with a family member or, or you just come along. And when you hear the pastor stand down the front and be like, you were dead. You're like, I am done. This is depressing. What I want to point out today is that Paul, who's Paul writing to? The church, it's not a trick question, the Ephesian church, the, the namesake, the Ephesians. He's writing to the Ephesians. He's not writing to all the Ephesians. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus was made up of Christians. Also not a trick question. He was made up of Christians. So Paul's not actually writing to people outside the faith. He's writing to Christians, which means if you are not yet a Christian in this room today, you get a front row seat to observe the truths that Christians think about themselves. And maybe you might go, I don't believe this. But what you actually get is, is a moment to see, is this a truth that you can see in your life? And Christians, Paul is not writing to the person next to you. Not only is Paul writing to Ephesus, but because of the word of God, I believe that this is a letter to us and you, Michael, John, Mary. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked. Michael, I did grade 10 biology. I know the signs of life. I'm responding to stimulus. I'm breathing. I'm growing. I'm not dead. I'm alive. What is Paul saying here? He's not talking about a physical death. Paul is talking about the idea that, friends, we are not a body that has a soul. We are a soul that for this period is confined into a body. He's talking about more than just your, your physicality. He's talking about the deeper reality of who you really are. You were dead spiritually. Now, we might be like, Michael, I, I don't think that that's fair. Like, I know people who aren't Christians who are doing really good things. They don't seem dead. They're doing nice. We're not talking about the idea that people who are not following Jesus can't do good things. We need to devoid ourselves from this in Christianity. We all know non-Christians who are sometimes nicer 
to the world than Christians. Amen? Yeah, some of you are like, amen. Yeah, this person next to me needs to hear you. Yeah, you probably need to hear me a bit more than them. There's, there's this sense, right? Where, where and, but Paul's not arguing that if you don't have Christ, you can't do anything good. He's saying if you don't have Christ, you can't save yourself. That no matter how much good you do, you can't give your soul life. It's decaying. In fact, we do good works to see if we can stop our soul from decaying. But why is it decaying? Because we are in our trespasses and our sins. What do you mean by trespasses and sins? A guy named David Guzik says it like this. The idea behind the word trespass is that we have crossed the line. We all understand the word trespass. Where If you've trespassed, you've gone where you've told not to go. And, and, and what Paul is saying is, God in his created order created all things to operate within his created order. He created everything. And everything has its divine way that it was meant to function and is meant to bless and flourish. God created sex. It's probably a teenager in the audience like, Mom, see, this is, we should be talking about this stuff. <laughs> God created sex. But what is the problem? Sex is not the problem. The boundary is the problem. We, we, we think that God is ashamed of this stuff. He said, I created it for your flourishing. The problem is, is that you've stepped over a line and you use it for your selfishness. That's not what I created it for. God created the idea of, of thriving and an economy. This, this is a godly thing. Money is not intrinsically bad, but it is one of the fastest ways to reveal evil in the human heart. Money, a piece of paper in and of itself is not evil. But what happens is, is that we cross a boundary of the place money has in our life. We trespass where it should not go. We make it ultimate. Marriage, relationships, careers, good things that we trespass the boundaries of God in his created order. And then we wonder why the world is broken. This is what it means to be trespassers. And friends, here's my suggestion. Have we not all trespassed? Have we not all trespassed? Christians, I'm talking to you, not the non-Christians in the room. They're, they're looking at you to see if you would agree with this. Have we not all trespassed? And have we not all sinned? What does it mean to sin? David Guzik goes on and says, to sin is the word hamatia in the Bible. And it means to miss the mark, the perfect standards of God. We were created in his image. We were created to follow God and be his perfect standard bearers in the world. And what happens when sin, sin stops us from serving God and we start to serve ourselves in selfishness. We have been dead in our trespasses and our sins. Why do we do these things? Paul, in his beautiful way of reasoning, he goes and says, let me tell you how you got here. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked, not in which you were once forced. We all need to acknowledge no one forces us to sin. We choose it willingly. We choose to trespass against God because we talked about this in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Because we think that we have moral autonomy. The reason that morality is really subjective. We can decide what's right and what's wrong. And so we walk our own way in which you once walked. Who defines what's right and wrong for us? Well, we actually take God off the throne. We don't even put ourselves on it. We put the world on the throne. You were dead in the way which you once walked, following the ways of the world. Every one of us, friends, is following something or someone. Every one of us. Jesus is not a companion for your journey. He is the point of your journey in and of itself. Are you following Jesus? Why don't we follow Jesus? Because... 
There is this curse of sin that is on us where we choose, well, maybe the world has more for us. But what we've got to realize is Paul builds on this and says, not only are you following the way of the world, there was someone who created the way of the world before you did. He created rebellion before you did. He was the first trespasser, the first sinner. Not only do you follow the way of the world, you're actually following in the footsteps of the prince of the power of the air. That is weird, the prince of the power of the air. It sounds like we're getting some Lord of the Rings kind of language here. What's Paul doing? Paul is talking to a Jewish context. And in Jewish context, they believe very much so that geographically heaven was up and hell was down. And the air in between or where we exist was the realm where spirituality is engaged with us. And the prince of the power of the air was the one who in the beginning of time was cast out of heaven at the first trespass, the first boundary cross, the first sin, Satan himself who is now at work in the world around us. Now, we can go with two ways when we talk about the devil, when we talk about spirits. We can be like, oh, it's a bit freaky, Michael. It's a bit superstitious. I do not think we should be superstitious. Where we start saying things like, the devil made me do it. Friends, no, he didn't. There is no devil on your shoulders going, do it. I should do it the other way. Do it. That's the microphone there. (laughs) That's not what's happening But you're following in a way that he already has walked. But you're doing it willingly. What we're doing here, friends, is we're following the footstep. Paul's saying, you're not the first person to try and fight for moral autonomy outside of the created order of God. That is the way of the enemy. He longs for the created order to be broken. But not only that, why do we follow in the way? Because he goes on and he says, because we want to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. Because we have disordered desires. My chief desire, God, is that I might have pleasure now. And I can do it better than you can. So I'm going to follow the way of the world, following the footsteps of the prince of the air, and I'm going to fulfill the desires of my heart. How's that been working for us? How's it been going? Let's look at the world. Doesn't seem to be working too well. And so Paul then finishes with this really brutal state, state of man. He says, and you were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Everyone say wrath. I know there are people here today who you've come back to church for the first time. And you're like, I'm hoping they preach a nice message. And you just heard wrath. And you're like, I'm done. I'm dead. And now there's wrath. What the heck? This is exactly why I left in the first place or never came back. Friends, we don't like the idea of wrath. Or do we? I actually think we do like the idea of wrath. We just don't like the idea of wrath beyond our control. Friends, we actually love wrath and justice. Can I tell you how I know that? What happened the last time you were cut off in traffic? Oh, just bless them, Father. Just bless that person. Bless that pea plater. Mm, More of your favor on him, Lord God. Nah, I tell you, this is what happened. Those young people... Tell you what, they don't drive like we... Uh, you know what, honey? I'm going to follow him to the lights. I'm going to show him what's happening right now. Righteous anger. We turn on the news. That's ScoMo. That Albanese. Oh, man. They're leading us. They're corrupt. They're terrible. What are we doing? We're angry. We, have, we want someone to pay. They're doing what overseas? Where is the justice? We love justice. We love this idea of wrath. But then it starts to, well, hang on. Let's talk about the evil in your heart. Oh, no. Let's talk about the evil of the people later. Am I right? Amen. Let's go there. 
We love wrath. We just hate it when it's about us. But you can't serve a God that cares about everyone else's evil and wants to hold them to account and not your own. We should be thankful that when the Bible talks about wrath, it's not talking about a capricious God who's like, I'm a bit moody today. I'm going to go out and test out my mood on humanity. God's anger is righteous and holy. It is predictable. When you read the Bible, you read through the whole Pentateuch, God says, don't do this because it will make me mad. And then what does the Israelites go and do? Let's see if he was right. And then they get mad, like, why are you mad? And when you read it, you're like, he told you 15 times. So too does God not say to us, don't do this. It's going to lead you down a wrong way. Well, I'll just go test. Why is God angry? That's unfair. No, it's love. Because you can't love something truly and see it destroying not only itself, but everyone else and say, I love you. No, you don't. You just like it. If you have a child and you willingly see the child hurting themselves and hurting your family through whatever, like just, I don't want to trigger too much stuff today, but whatever that would look like, there would be a righteous anger in you about that situation because of your love. This is not good. We should want a God who wants justice. The problem is you can't have a God for justice for everybody else and not for you. We can't walk in our own way and be like, yeah, no, but God, like, you know, I'm not like Hitler or anything, right? But we don't do that. We, we don't go to Hitler. We go, I'm not like Susan. Like, if you're a Susan in the audience, God loves you. But like this, like, I'm not gossiping. And what we do is we lower the holiness of God as we lower our own evil intent. And then we go... God will forgive me. And we wonder why this, the grace of God doesn't actually bring the transformation. Because we haven't had a revelation of what Paul's trying to talk about here. He's saying, before you can understand how mighty and amazing and great God's love for you is, you've got to understand the state of your own heart. And he's not writing to non-Christians. He's writing to me. Friends, you don't graduate from the revelation of how much you need God. Without him, you were dead. Do you know that today? Because there is a non-Christian in the room right now who's going, my life's not together. I'm dead. And I hear God wrath and anger, and I, I could understand it because I've screwed up. Are they sitting in a room of people who can justify why God chose them or who are dumbfounded by the grace of God. Fleming Rutledge talks about the wrath of God like this. God's anger. The quote is a little longer. Let me, let me just go to the quote. It says, if we, are, if we are resistant to the idea of the wrath of God, we might pause to reflect the next time we are out, outraged about something, about our property values being threatened, our children's educational opportunities being limited, or our tax breaks being eliminated. All of us are capable of anger about something. But God's anger, however, is pure. It doesn't have the maintenance of privilege as its object, but goes out on behalf of those who have no privileges. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God has temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and he's come to make and set matters right. Friends, we should long for a God that cares about justice. Justice. 
But we should recognize he doesn't want to start out there. He wants to start here. With your evil, with your sin, with our brokenness. Dane Ortland goes on and said, you'll never make yourself feel that you're a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We're actually pretty on good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. That's me. I'm not that bad. What if we were? What if we are? What Paul is trying to do here is to help us realize how far we've fallen. So that what comes next is still good news. For too many Christians, we graduate the gospel. I don't need the gospel anymore. That was when I got saved. Friends, the Bible says, I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. You never graduate your need for the grace of God. We should look at our own heart. Look at that conversation you had in on the way at the car, on the way in on the car, or that thought that you thought in the middle of worship when we were all doing something else. And you're like, man, I'm totally distracted right now. That's not a thought God would want. Or that thing that you happened to you this week, that sight you looked at, that gossiping you took part in. And you should be conscious that this breaks the heart of God. This was not his intention for his creation. And his heart is grieved by this. And we should call out, what is our hope? What can wash away my sins? What can make me whole again? These are the natural questions that Paul is demanding his readers ask. And it's the questions that have been answered by him since the start of time. Right? Not, maybe not since the start of time, but since we've been singing songs. What can wash away my sin? Don't join a choir. Just maybe choral work isn't for everyone in this room. <laughs> what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Paul pivots in a moment. They got the words. That's well done. That was great. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> My man, you must have heard it before. There's this moment where what we see happen next is the power of the butt. Is the power of what God does is not what God should do. What we see in a moment is the greatest hinge in all of Scripture as we're heading in a direction towards the, the wrath and righteous nature of God and God swings the story around and we read, but God. Now let me ask you this question. Let's put your name in there. And let's say that humanity had treated you the way that it had treated God. Burning your house down. Stealing what you purpose for another reason. Sacrificing and hurting and demeaning and bullying your loved creation. What you created to flourish. Humanity is used for its own selfishness. If we were to put your name in there, say, but Mark, but Amy, but Elizabeth, but Michael, how would you react to being spurned by the thing that you created for goodness and life and love, having seen it chose evil? But Michael brought his wrath. That's how we act towards Susan at work, right? But God chose a different route. But God, who is rich in mercy. The Bible never talks about God being rich in anger. 
but he is rich in mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? I remember when I used to play sport. I used to play basketball. We've talked about this before. I'm a terrible basketballer. Never ask me to play on your team. The reason why is because every time we played, my team was that bad that we would always have something called the mercy rule invoked. Does anyone remember the mercy rule? Like two people, guys, I'm in the wrong church. I need a church with failure of sports. They would understand where I'm at. The mercy rule was this thing in basketball where we were 50 points down and the other team would be like, guys, we're going to come give you mercy. It's really demeaning. Um, and it pretty much meant that they weren't allowed to cross over the halfway mark towards us. So they couldn't come attack our, our, our hoop unless they had the ball. So we could like play our own game down our end and then like try and get past their defense. We still lost like 50 points to five. Like it was horrible. But the mercy rule was this idea of this team that had the power going, we'll hold back what we can do so that you have a chance. And when we talk about God is rich in mercy, that, deme- that, that analogy even demeans it. What, what it is, is you have a mighty king who, who has his rebellious servants, his children, his loved ones come before his throne and And in that moment, what he chooses instead of punishment, he holds back the power that he could exact and he goes, I will show you mercy. Now, if we left God's character there, we're like, well, that's still fairly cold. God is not just rich in mercy. It goes further than that. He says, because not just of mercy, but because of the great love which he has loved us. Why does God have a but God moment in your life? It's not because you did anything, but because of his great love for you. That whilst you were dead, not when you came to church, not when you started reading the Bible, not when you turned around and you're like, I might explore God. When you were in your darkest moment, when you were at the steepest moment of your failure, In that moment, when you were dead in your trespasses, the love of God was coming for you. And he made you alive with Christ Jesus. This is why the resurrection matters. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, friends, there is no hope for your soul. But because he did, God goes, I bring dead stuff back to life. Watch what I can do with yours. He wants you to come to him with this sense of, I do not deserve this. But he goes, I know, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Why does he give us this love? It says, because it's by grace you have been saved. By grace. Grace is unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted, a favor of God. It's like you go and you scratch someone's car and in response they give you $50 million and you're like, why? And they go, because of my great love for you. That is pales in comparison to what God gives us to the grace. You don't deserve it. You're a rebel. Most of you have spent most of our lives going, stuff you, God. We sit in church and we still say that. And God goes, I will pour it out upon you. I will pour it out upon you because I know what my grace can do. What does God's grace do? Well, I've told this story many times, and I tell it whenever I talk about the gospel with young people. God deals with mud. I want you to picture that the story of you and God is like you were, say to God one day, I want to go outside, I want to play, I want to hang out, like I just want to play in the fields. God goes, that's fine, but remember, there's no mud in my house. And you're like, that's, that's cool. 
That's weird, but okay, fine. And so you go outside and playing because you're like, no mud in God's house. And you're out there playing in the daffodils. And you're like, this is the best. I love this. We're having fun playing tag, 44 horn, Red Rover, whatever you played when you were young, Duck, Duck, Goose. Probably no one played. That was a horrible game. I didn't understand the point of it. But there's this sense we're just having fun. And then what do you look at? Right there is the most glorious pool of mud. And you're like, God said no, but what if I just stepped outside the boundary for a second and just had a go? God, God, God doesn't want me to have fun. And mud is fun. So I'm just going to look at that person the way that I know God would not want me to. I'm going to think that thought. I'm going to do that deed. I'm going to take part in that. Yeah, oh, this feels good. This feels great. And then the dinner bell rings. And you realize God is calling us home. And you come to the front door covered in mud. And there's this beautiful moment when you realize the horror when the sign out the front says, no mud allowed. And you look at the door, you look at yourself, you look at the door, you look at yourself, and you're like, oh, no. I'm just going to go back and sit in the mud. But then the door cracks open. And Jesus pokes out, and he's in like nappy sand, brilliant white clothes. <laughs> right? And he's standing there, and he looks at you, and he goes, guys, where are you going? It's like, oh, Jesus, look at us. Oh, we can't come in. We've got mud on. It's like, mm. He looks at you, looks at him, looks at you, looks back at him, looks back at you. And he says, I've got an idea. Let's change clothes. And he, he takes his clothes and he replaces them and he takes on your mud and your dirt and your sin and your shame. And he says, I'll do this because the Father wants you back inside so he'll make a way home. You're like, but Jesus... You shouldn't have to die in my place. Don't worry, I've got a very good cleaner. It's not the end of my story. That's what happens when Christ makes us alive again. He says, even though you chose the mud, I am choosing a better path for you and I will pay the price of it. Friends, have you changed clothes with Christ? Have you asked him to make you new and alive again? Jesus doesn't come to make your life better. He's not an app that you open when things get hard. He wants to not return you. He wants to renew you. Make you a new creation. This is why it is so beautiful. The Bible promises that we are made alive in Christ and that God raises us up with him and seats him, seats us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. I hate going to dinner parties. Except your dinner party, which you might invite me to. That would be great. That would be awesome. But the reason why I hate it is because there's always a moment when, I, at least I hate going to parties with more than two like, place settings. So you've got to work out where to sit. And where you sit says so much about how, what you think of yourself. If you sit too near the you know, head of the table, you'll be like, oh, someone's a big shot over here. And we sometimes feel like that when we come into the kingdom of God. Where do I sit with God? But what the verse tells us that when you enter the throne room of grace, when you, when you rock up in the presence of God, not just in church, but in your bedroom, wherever you are, and you go, and you have a revelation of the beauty and holiness and greatness of God, what it says in the Bible is because you've changed clothes with Christ, when you go to sit where the poor, the lonely, where the, the down and out, where the sinners sit, God calls your name. It says, Mary, my daughter, my son just said, you're with him. Come and sit with me. You seat at the table of royalty in the kingdom of God. 
We learn about the state of man, but the response of God elevates us past what our state deserves. Friends, do you know that you sit at the table of the king? Not because you deserve it, but because of his great grace. Not only does the Bible tell us of the great but of God that we have uh, the state of man, the response of God, but we are called now to live in the way of grace. Paul goes on and he says this, For it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. What does that mean? What does it mean to be saved by grace through faith? This is a theological question that people have argued. So I'm going to try and make this as simple as I can because I only really understand, to understand the simple level of it. So if that's you, if you're like me and you're not as intellectual as others, then join the club. This is how I understand what God is saying here. He's saying by grace, so by the unmerited favor of God that is given to you, the way you are saved is not by earning grace, it's by faith. You cannot be saved without faith. What is faith? Faith is not a work that you strive for. It is a place you place your active trust. Let me explain this. Sometimes we think in Christians that faith is something you generate, which means in church we have more constipated Christians than we do anything else. It's like, oh! oh, I don't feel it. Faith is a gift from God. And faith is the ability for us to not work, but to rest. Faith is when we come, like sitting in a chair is placing your faith in the chair. Placing your faith in the grace of God is when you say, I trust that the finished work of Jesus Christ was enough. And by faith, I declare that I will be forgiven when I've repented and chosen to follow Jesus. I place my active faith, my active trust, which means every day when I wake up and the devil or the enemy or media starts to say, Michael, you are nothing more than your worst mistake. Michael, you are, you are, you are fallen. Michael, you better be a good pastor if you don't preach today. You aren't good enough. If, you don't, if people don't clap at some point in your sermon, then that means that God doesn't love you and you've got to strive harder. And I go, no, 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 hang on, hang on. My worth, my value does not come by anything I do. My worth and my value does not come by, my, by anything what I deserve because what I deserve is wrath. What I deserve is anger. What I deserve is God's punishment. But instead, this is what I know, that I have the unmerited, I have the undeserved, I have the complete favor of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That if I preach a shocker today, which tell me about it afterwards, God will love me just the same as if I preach a message that leads us to revival because neither of that changes the love of God by me. So I place my trust in God that His grace was enough. Do you have active faith in God? Do you have active trust that his finished work of Jesus Christ changing clothes with you was enough for you to be made righteous in him? Because what this means is that as Christians, none of us can boast. As a result, this is not a, a result of, of, a, of anything we've done. Paul says this. He says, it, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of your work. So that no one can boast, which means, friends, if you're strutting around the world, be like, I'm a Christian. Look how good I am. You got it wrong. The grace of God doesn't force people to look at you. It diverts their attention back to Him. We are not meant to boast at the fact that we're up to the standard of Bible reading. We're reading Deuteronomy and Luke. Oh man, I've been working real hard. I must be a pretty good Christian. That's not how a Christian thinks. Because he goes, but for the grace of God. 
But for the grace of God, I would be lost. I would be alone. But because of God's grace, I am redeemed and I am saved. Not because I've done anything, because He's done anything. Friends, here's the beauty. In Christianity, we don't perform for love. We don't perform that God might love us. We perform from love. The ultimate test of life has been taken. And you've, you, you know you've failed. You were meant to study and you procrastinated. And you got a whole bunch of the questions wrong. But here's the beauty of the test of life. When it gets given back to you, there's an A plus at the top of your paper. And you're like, I didn't even know the answer to how I got so many wrong. And Jesus leans in and goes, yeah, I know. I switched our tests. And you're like, Jesus, that's cheating. Exactly. Now someone's going to come and be like, Michael, you shouldn't talk about God's grace as cheating. Totally agree with you. I'm not theologically backing that statement right now. What I'm trying to highlight is that the scandal of what Jesus does should arrest us. The response of God is that the grace of God is given to us. Why? So that you might know we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Now, I've heard this preached in many different ways. Some people preach this as an evangelistic message, saying, guess what? God sees everyone as His masterpiece. I hope this is not hurtful, but no, He doesn't. Because we're broken. We don't become God's workmanship in verse 1 to 3. We become God's worship Workmanship after the but God moment. Because ultimately, God is the potter and we are the clay and our lives are intrinsically broken. If someone was to look at the workmanship of someone's life before meeting Jesus, they would see shards of something that is a pale comparison of what it was created to be. Friends, it is only after encountering Jesus that we become a masterpiece. And this is the beauty of the story. See, what God wants to do with the broken shards of your life is a process that in Japan is called kitsugi. And in Japan, what happens with kitsugi is that these potters, uh, when, when a piece of pottery is broken in Japan, these kitsugi masters, and I might have said that wrong, but they take these broken shards and they glue them back together perfectly. Except, not with glue, and not so that you can't see the cracks. They glue it back together with gold. And it's considered more valuable than the potter, than the pottery in the beginning. Now, someone said to me, they're probably out there just breaking their own things and being like, oh, this is a million dollars, this one. I, I genuinely think that that's not what happens, that we shouldn't culturally misappropriate what happens there. But what I love in this moment is this is the story of what God does with his masterpieces. He doesn't stick people back together so that no one sees our cracks. The way he sticks us back together is that it's in our cracks that people see the gold of his grace. And as Christians, we spend too much time hiding our past or hiding the fact that we aren't all there and we don't have it all together. When you've got to realize that when we hop up and we people go, you don't have it all together. And you're like, but God still chose me. What? And then they go, oh, so God might do the same for me? Oh, yeah, bring your cracks to him. He will make you a masterpiece. See, there are two types of Christians here, two types of people in the world. Jesus calls it as the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee that walks into church. And we call this guy the pastor. Let's say he's the pastor. 
The pastor comes down the front of the service. He's there early so that everyone can see that he's on time. And the story of the Pharisee or the pastor turns around and Jesus says that he stands up and goes, God, thank you. Make sure everyone can hear him. That I am a Pharisee. I give two, I, I give all my, my tithes to God. Mm, thank you, Jesus. I fast twice a week. And God, in fact, and tax collectors over here, he goes, oh, thank you. I'm not like him. Thank God I'm nothing like Susan. Once again, Susan's God loves you. <laughs> thank God I'm nothing like Susan. For I am a Pharisee. And Jesus says, the tax collector comes in and he hears the Pharisee's words. He gets low. The Bible says he beats his chest. He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen. And Jesus says, one of these men walked out redeemed. Was it the man who brought his resume and his comparison? Or the man who brought himself authentically to God with his cracks? It's the tax collector. There are too many Christians here in this room today who are like me, where we think God loves us because of something we bring to the table. The reason why the down and out, the poor, the lowly, the destitute, the outcasts were the first to accept Christ wasn't because they were any more broken than the Pharisees. They were just more aware of their brokenness than everyone else. So God's grace filled their cracks. Are you a masterpiece today? Are you ready to become one? Let's pray. Gracious God, in this moment, I thank you so much for your grace and your goodness and your love. I thank you that you are present with us. And right now there are people here who have heard the gospel and they're thinking, I feel like more like a Genesis 1 to 3 person than a, uh, sorry, Ephesians 1 to 3 person than, a, than the verses of, of 4 to 10. God says to you right now, it's cool. Just come to me. Let's change clothes. Let me kitsugi your life. If that's you today, I would love you just to open your hands out in front of you. If you're a Christian today and, and, and you've forgotten that you're a masterpiece, not because you did anything, but because you're his masterpiece, that you need the world to see your cracks again. Just open your hands up in front of you. I'm just going to pray together. If you want to pray, if you want to respond to Jesus' work right now, you can repeat these words after me. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I repent of my trespasses. I want to follow you. Forgive me of my brokenness. Make me into your masterpiece. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, in your grace, you remind us that when we come to you and we believe in our, in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and we repent and turn, you save, Father. May we place our active trust in you right now in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And we join with heaven as brothers and sisters come home celebrating the Kitsugi masterpieces you're making with our worlds. May the world see us and not see someone that has it together, but for the grace of God, would they see beauty and your design. In Jesus' name, amen.